Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We're also online at pedagoguepodcast.com. That's pedagoguepodcast.com. You can read more about our contributors and access transcripts for every episode on the site. In this episode, I talk with Asia Y. Martinez about grad school, her first experience teaching writing, counter story as theory and methodology, and national conversations on critical race theory. Asia Y. Martinez is assistant professor of English at University of North Texas. Her scholarship published nationally and internationally makes a compelling case for counter story as methodology in rhetoric and writing studies through the well-established framework of critical race theory. Her book, Counter Story, The Rhetoric and Writing of Critical Race Theory, has been named one of the 20 best new rhetoric books to read in 2021 by Book Authority and is nominated for the 2021 Teaching Literature Book Award. Her writing has appeared in College English, Composition Studies, and Rhetoric Review. Asia, thanks so much for joining us. How about we start with your story? How did you get interested in studying rhetoric and composition and teaching writing? So I think it's a pretty funny story. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at University of Arizona. Thought at one point that I was going to become a lawyer, which is really interesting with that connection with legal studies and critical race theory that I can get into a bit more later. But uh, I was pursuing a degree in anthropology, just a nice, easy social science, I thought, to segue nicely into maybe a law degree. Through the course of the anthropology degree, I ended up in some pretty amazing mentorship and even field work experiences with an anthropologist named Richard Stoffel, and uh, got convinced to start applying to grad programs in anthropology around that time. So I was, but then I was still thinking at the back of my mind, I was maybe going to be a lawyer. And I got the advice of a family friend lawyer that English was the good other degree to pick up to prepare for law school. So I decided to double major kind of last minute, which added a whole nother year to my undergraduate studies. And in that process of that additional degree, met Roxanne Mountford and Ed White as my undergraduate (laughs) Um, teachers in the rhetoric courses that I just didn't understand were rhetoric courses at the time. You know, I just thought, or rhetoric and writing studies, uh, just thought, oh, this is just English. This is part of what I'm doing as my core courses. Um, Sometime in the course of Roxanne's course, I was introduced to rhetorical criticism, particularly narrative criticism. And that was the first moment that I realized, oh, all these stories within my family that have been really important to me can be part of what I study in this field. Uh, I don't know that I would have articulated it that clearly back then, but I was starting to get that inkling. Like, oh, okay, I can, you know, do something with. And Roxanne was like, yes, absolutely, you can. And so by the time I was truly applying for graduate programs that I thought was going to be anthropology, um, I did approach Roxanne for a letter of recommendation. And she made pretty clear to me that she would gladly write one for me. She thought I was a great student, but on the contingency that I would also apply to rhetoric and writing studies programs. I was like, why? What would, <laughs> what would I do in rhetoric and writing studies? I just don't 
And she said, no, you know, as long as you apply to both, I'll gladly write you that letter. So I tease her and say, oh, she, you know, like strong armed me into the field because I had no plans to that point. Uh, And so I did. I followed her advice, applied to uh, programs in both uh, disciplines. And by that point, I was a single mom uh, and uh, it boiled down to money. You know, the most money I was being offered, the most, you know, in terms of salary benefits, you know, tuition waivers was in rhetoric and writing studies because we teach <laughs> in rhetoric and writing studies and that's not a guarantee in anthropology programs. So that was, you know, that economic consideration was uh, convincing, especially because that kept me in Tucson where my family and foundation and support were. So that was uh, by and large how I ended up in this field. <laughs> it was kind of, <laughs> Roxanne Mountford blackmailed me. So thinking back, what, what was it like stepping foot in the writing classroom for the first time as a teacher what were you thinking and and how were you feeling in that moment just completely intimidated uh by that point so what i entered what i ultimately entered was a ma to phd program so i was 22 years old and had you know been an undergrad myself a couple months earlier Uh, And now I'm in front of this classroom as the professor of these new, you know, first year students, having had about what amounted to, I would say, two weeks of orientation and training. Uh, And so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I barely knew, as we just discussed, what my field was, let alone what I was doing in that classroom. And I would say it took me a good year and a half about three solid semesters of of failing, I would say, before I finally got my footing and felt like I was developing an identity as a teacher. Um, And it's not for lack of wanting to have that identity because my mom tells the story that I was, I don't know, pretty young, but was already playing teacher. I never played house. I never played you know, why for any of that, I always played teacher and my little brother was one of my students with my stuffed animals and he had to raise his hand and it was very, you know, and so I've I've had, you know, that I guess inclination from a young age, but the actual getting in front of students and being the responsible party. Um, What I do remember though, is that I, that was around the year that the film Crash came out and won the Academy Award. And I was really moved by that film in the sense that it was touching on issues of race that I hadn't seen other films do as effectively. I know there's critiques of the film and there's things that could have been done better, but at the time with the critical lens I had, it was effective, you know, and I knew I wanted to work with that film into my classroom somehow. And this is where I'm saying I I failed a lot because I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have the tools um, to do that in a I guess, smooth and even compassionate way with my students that uh, accounted for all the things I feel like I account for now, like my own, you know, embodiment in that classroom as, you know, a brown woman and also for like the intense whiteness of my students. And so it was tough. It was scary. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't feel like I knew what I was doing for, like I said, about three semesters. And I just felt very young and very not separate from my students in terms of age or even knowledge base. And now, Asia, of course, now I'm I'm thinking about how you are an established teacher and and such an important voice in our field. Your teaching and research interests include the the rhetorics of race within Western and non-Euro-Western context. Can you talk more about this work 
and how you invite students to consider these different knowledges and meaning-making practices. Yeah, what it's always boiled down to me is just um, thinking broadly about what the text is and what constitutes literacies. And so that's why so many scholars from, you know, interdisciplinarity has always been important in my space for a teacher, but also a researcher, because I feel like these other disciplines and knowledges make it easier for students to see, oh, okay, so this is how they think of a text in media studies versus, you know, in literacy or in sociology. And um, and they get called different things, right? Artifacts or a text or whatever. And so even just knowing that, that the terminology changes depending on the discipline, but that what we're talking about centrally is this thing that we're going to analyze and that it isn't especially in humanities and English studies, always a book (laughs) that has been written and published by somebody important that we all have to worship. Um, It can be something, you know, there is meaning making happening on all these different types of texts. And so just recognizing that is a really good starting point, because then that expands what's possible in terms of who has created, (laughs) you know, a text and who has communication practices, and it doesn't get confined to whatever that Euro-Western tradition has been that we've been learning for most of our educations. And that's the other thing I think that's important to have as conversations with any level of student really from, you know, the first year students to graduate students is that what we've been taught as the canon um, can be challenged, you know, and we can even go back into what is considered the canon, insert ourselves in certain ways and, um, account for all the things that are important to rhetoricians like context, right? So in which time and space were these documents being created? And uh, that needs to be definitely dealt with. You know, we can't forget that part because I think we can be critical of what was being said in those times and spaces. But if we're not accounting for context, we're going to miss some things. (laughs) We're going to miss why something was being said the way it was. I think that my teaching practice, especially what Counter-Story has allowed for, has made pathways for me to help students see that you can insert yourself into these other conversations in ways that maybe felt prohibitive because of who you are as, you know, whatever your identities are, whatever context you're existing in now, or because, you know, your people and their stories aren't being represented and never have been. Your book, Counter-Story, The Writing and Rhetoric of Critical Race Theory, invites teachers to consider counterstory as a methodology. You write, It's high time that the gatekeepers of this profession get out of the way so we as counter-storytellers can get on with the business of writing and sharing our stories without having to repeatedly rationalize the legitimacy of our theoretical and methodological choices. End quote. Do you mind talking more about Counterstory and the affordances of counterstory as a theoretical framework and methodology, and what this does or provides writing teachers and composition studies at large. I think what uh, the problem that academia, I would say, has had with story and storytelling. Uh, forever, (laughs) Uh, as long as, you know, people of color and others, you know, with marginalized identities have been offering these stories. The problem has been that it gets reduced to things like genre, and then easily dismissed for that reason, that this is not research, this is not a way about going 
into the research. Um, there's nothing that theoretically frames what this is. You know, that accusation has always existed. It's never been true, as other scholars before me have so aptly, you know, um, I think demonstrated. I'm not the first one to make this claim, not even in our field, let alone in other fields. But I think the power of what I've been able to research and I think present through this counterstory work is that critical race theory in particular. So that's, you know, the framework on which I'm hinging my approach to storytelling um, is very much informed <laughs> by uh, tenets. And these tenets are theoretical frameworks that can be applied to the analysis of counter stories. And so that's the starting point. And as far as teaching goes, you know, you can do that in the classroom with any number of things. I just taught a literature graduate seminar last semester with that framework. And we weren't reading counter stories by critical race theorists. We were reading literature by novelists like Octavia Butler and Ana Castillo and others and applying that framework to analyze it as, you know, an example of what counter story could be. Right. And so it can be used in that way with students and learners. Um, but counter story itself as the method of methodology, it was important to me to repeat and to keep repeating that this is not just genre, it is genre, and there are genres within that I can demonstrate and show you all that the different exemplars have done, but it is method and it's methodology, it's the way about which we do this critical race theory work, and here is what it's, you know, related back to. I always tell audiences, go back to those tenets, because those tenets are what are going to be the barometer for you <laughs> about whether or not you're doing counter story, whether or not you're even doing critical race theory for that matter. It's just, I think, important to say that and to say it again and to say it until, you know, people understand it, which I think maybe the book has finally done because that's the kind of feedback I've been getting. It's not just genre. There's nothing wrong with genre, but don't reduce it to just that because I've seen it too often reduced to that so as to dismiss it from the academic circles of what counts as scholarship, what counts as a way to do research, what counts as something to teach in a methods course. How did you center critical race theory in your writing classes? Through what text or assignments or conversations or materials? So that's worked for me at a few levels. Um, two in particular where there's been the courses I've taught that are explicitly like, this is what critical race theory is, this is its history. These are the key players, these are, you know, the methodologies. And so I have those version of courses. There are also then the courses that I've, I think very intentionally asked to teach, especially in my previous um, job at Syracuse University where we had a standalone rhetoric and writing department with a doctoral program. And there were core courses on basically the histories of writing and rhetoric. And so those core courses, there's a lot that can be done with those courses in terms of who gets represented, you know, and those decisions are always political. Those decisions are always based on the training of uh, the, the faculty, what programs they're coming from, what those, you know, political or um, types of, of leanings are. And so what I took a moment to think about, especially when I very explicitly was requesting to teach core courses was a couple things. One is that when I, you know, and this is true for a lot of marginalized people in our field, we end up getting uh, elective courses as the graduate courses that we teach. Um, but that results in a few things that results in not getting to work with all the graduate students at any given time because they're not required courses. And that works to further marginalize our, our subject areas <laughs> into these elective spaces. They're not central to what is 
important to be learned as part of this graduate program. And so when we get to teach these core courses and then me, for instance, when I apply this critical race theory framework to a core course, what I'm thinking about is always those interstitial spaces where those counter stories are happening. So instead of framing it as a course where we are going to spend a week on African-American rhetorics and then move on, I, I don't feel satisfied with that. I don't think that covers what African-American rhetoricians have said let alone African-American rhetoric scholars have said about what is supposedly this, you know, umbrella term African-American rhetorics. And so what would a critical race theory approach provide? Well, it provides, I think, that different perspective of, okay, so within that umbrella category, there's nuance, there's complexity, there's a lot of different subject areas taken up, such as literacy, such as students' rights to their own language, such as actual, you know, like, I don't know, um, preachers, you know, like that have been studied who are African-American writers. So there's a lot of different areas that can be covered that not all African-American scholars in our field in particular do. They don't do all the same work. So why would you confine and conflate all of what they do to one week's worth of teaching? Why don't we separate, parse out the subject areas? And so if we're going to parse out students' rights to their own language, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different subjectivities who have said something about that topic. So let's put all of those folks in there. That'll include some white folks. That'll include some people from, you know, the Latinx identities. I mean, that'll be a pretty complex and robust conversation that is thematically focused versus racially identified and focused. Because um, again, that's doing the same work of reducing identity to just a singular category that we check the box of and move on from after that week is completed. And that's not the first or last time I want my students to hear from those who have done that work, who are of that identity category. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of um, diversity and complexity. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about when there's that critical race theory approach to courses. It's first demanding that you get to teach those core courses, but then doing more with those core courses than just kind of a multicultural diversity display, if you will. Asia, what's been really interesting nationally is the spotlight on critical race theory. And, and I don't know what to call it, but it feels like CRT is talked about as some kind of recent theory or approach or development yeah, this work goes back to the 1970s and 1980s. I don't know, maybe this is more of me self-reflecting than an actual question, but I don't quite understand where this national conversation or the presence of critical race theory in mainstream media is coming from. Is it this increase of attention because information is being circulated differently? Is it because of our political climate and culture? Is it because bills are being introduced about it? I mean, I'm just trying to figure it out and I'm interested in your own reflection on I guess the, the nature of these conversations and the way critical race theory is being talked about nationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And I've gotten this question quite a bit and uh... So first off, uh, I am on academia.edu, and that's not a plug. I'm just saying this because I got a message there not too long ago from someone who downloaded one of my essays that I have posted. And verbatim, this person said, um, from a two, this paper is from a 2014 viewpoint. He's commenting. He said, I thought that CRT was a more recent invention because of current battles over its use in primary education curricula. So puzzled and surprised that this is not something that just 
popped up once they go ahead and read my scholarship that shows, no, this is definitely a post-civil rights um, iteration that started in law schools and, you know, has been around for, for quite some time, um, making its way through legal studies into education, into all the other disciplines that it now exists. And so, yes, it's been around for a minute uh, in terms of context and what has made it, what the answer to the why now, I guess, question would be is, that's also something that can be referenced back to, I would say, one of the tenets of critical race theory, which is interest convergence, which was theorized by Derek Bell, one of the founding people of critical race theory. Bell explains it as, you know, for any advances that communities of color um, get, there's always some sort of interest for the white elites that is going to be converged with that. And so he uses the most, you know, I think historic and prominent example of Brown versus the Board of Education, the desegregation of schools. And he said, you know, that wasn't necessarily just to afford liberation in a sense or achievements for communities of color. We were in the Cold War era. And so on the global stage, you know, there was this look for democracy that as far as branding goes, didn't look so good. You know, uh, the former Soviet Union and China were putting on on their front pages of their newspapers, images of lynchings in the United States, police brutality, stuff that is not dissimilar from what we're living in in this current context, it mirrors, if you will. And we're pointing to that and saying, is this the democracy that they're selling? Because if it is, we don't want it. You know, this is not, you know, what we're going to buy into. As far as image goes, you know, the U.S. had some image repair branding work to do. And I hate to reduce it to that, but it's ironic that um, especially from the standpoint of rhetoricians, right, who study this sort of thing, how we're persuaded, that I feel like people keep missing that there is a journalist out there named Christopher Rufo who has been very blatant and very um, honest with all of us about what the strategy is with critical race theory. He has tweeted, he has done interviews with The New Yorker where he has said, I have a quote here, we have successfully frozen their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions, we will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. Okay, and so this is no, this is not covert, you know, uh, the folks who are anti-CRT are showing us their cards, you know, and we're falling for it, you know, just over and over and over again. It's a bamboozling that's happening and a victimization, I would say, of lots and lots of parents out there who just don't know and maybe don't know where to look for the information because they're being fed information from websites like one called criticalrace.org. I believe that's what it's called. And that is, again, from another conservative, you know, uh, extreme right-wing sort of person who has an explanation of what it is, it's wrong. You know, everything that he's saying it is, is completely off in terms of who he even connects, you know, or gives credit to as founding critical race theory. I mean, he's citing Marx, he's citing Kendi, he's citing D'Angelo, people who have all done great work, but they are not the key players in critical race theory in terms of what that term actually refers to. And so this sort of misdirection and misguiding uh, of uninformed people is very strategic, but also being, is very blatant. You know, Christopher Rufo has never lied about what his strategy is and what he's doing. And I, I'm still puzzled <laughs> as to why people are not seeing what he's doing and dismissing it outright for that reason. And then, you know, trying to find out from others, you know, what 
what it actually is and what it actually entails. And then if you want to still dismiss it, fine, but at least know what it is that you're against. So you just laid out the strategy, so to speak, that is happening and what is taking place and what's going on. And I'm wondering, is there a step that rhetoric and composition and and writing teachers should be taking in this moment? What would you encourage the field and us to do as educators? Becoming educated on what critical race theory actually is, because that is the first misdirection, is not being informed about the tenets and the history and what is actually being proposed here. Because the big, I think, a scare tactic that's being used is it one the alignment with Marxism first of all right that you know this is all an invention of Karl Marx not true and that this is all something that is being used to just you know brainwash and you know just totally imbibe all our students in this you know anti-American ideology that is harmful to our country and our national security we've seen all of this before this has happened in other forms of legislation even in Arizona where I am from where ethnic studies was banned at one point between 2010 and 2017 it was effectively legislatively banned in the sense of teaching Mexican-American history and uh, literatures. And so this is effective in getting things uh, taken out of the classroom that would provide, this is where counter-story comes again, that complexity of perspective to whatever the master narrative is, that master narrative of America's greatness, of the founding fathers having never been flawed humans, you know, having no complexity themselves, and uh, and even silencing, dismissing, uh, and barring and banning certain texts, such as at this point, at least in Texas, there's a proposal to get rid of some of MLK's speeches because of the fear that they are promoting a certain sort of, you know, anti-American sentiment that students should not be learning, you know. And so silencing MLK, the darling of everyone who would claim they're not racist, right? Like that's just, you know, it's it's incredible to me that they're willing to go to that length, to that degree. What will that result in? Those are some pretty heavy consequences for us as a country uh, in terms of whose voices are being heard, what stories are getting told. And so what can be done in rhetoric and writing studies is to continue teaching our students how to see this uh, this ruse for what it is, you know, and it's not a covert operation. That's the thing that I keep saying to audiences that we have not been not told the whole time what they're doing, that this is a branding exercise, almost like a sophistic (laughs) exercise, right? Like what we've read this office used to do just for fun. And that's the impression I get from this Rufo guy is that I don't even know that he has any particular stake in this outside of just being effective in this persuasive strategy to brand uh, and categorize under an umbrella term that sounds scary, critical race theory has been effectively made this villainous term, but put everything under it that uh, certain white people don't want to do anymore. They don't want to go to diversity trainings. They don't want their children to have to learn about whiteness. They don't want their children to have to learn about how our founding fathers owned slaves um, and how our country was actually founded. You know, the kind of atrocities that were committed that um, I guess they think detracts from, again, that ideology of America's greatness. So if we can put all of that under this brand category and dismiss it all by way of saying that this is, you know, going to be, you know, detrimental in some way to our society, to our ways as Americans, then the job is done, you know. And so just helping students see that, you know, helping students know those tools of rhetorical analysis at its base 
you know, its most basic form and learning how to apply those tools to the discourses that are surrounding this controversy, including what Rufo is saying, but including what critical race theorists actually have said. And some of it might seem threatening, right? Like if you're legitimately dismissing it for what it is, at least again, know what it is that you're taking issue with. Thanks, Asia. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.